first reading is Psalm 27, verses 4 to 8, and can be found on page 556 of your church Bibles. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Second reading is taken from Matthew chapter 12, verses 15, correction, 18 to 21. And it's on page 977 of your pew Bibles. Here is my servant, who I, am cho- who I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the nations will, be put to, will put their hope. This is the word of the Lord. Can I encourage you to find your Bibles if you haven't already? We're going to be digging in to begin with Psalm 27, the first reading, which is on page 557. 557. As you're doing that, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is treasure to be richly received. And we pray, Lord, that we might be enriched this morning. Speak to us and instruct us. Increase our joy and expectancy. Help us to see you. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to begin with a story that I came across a few years ago of a retired Australian judge. And he was voted in Australia as one of the best judges that they had ever had. He was called Marcus Enfield. He was made an Australian living treasure in 1997 and was given the United Nations Peace Prize in 2002. Even in retirement, he was called back to judge various cases because the country couldn't do without his expertise. He was that good. But he had a sudden fall from grace. And it all came about through a speeding ticket. He was speeding in his Lexus through Sydney and he'd gone six miles above the limit and he got stopped uh, by a traffic camera that, that picked him up and he was issued a fixed penalty notice. I'm sure some people in here might have been given such a notice. I'm not going to ask. And it was for 36 Australian dollars. But unfortunately, he feared what this would do to his reputation. And so he tried to get out of the fine. 
he said that actually it couldn't have been him that was driving the car because he'd lent the car to an American friend of his, someone called Professor Teresa Brennan. And when this, was, this came out, well, a newspaper tracked this person down. And unfortunately, they found that she'd been dead for three years. And then they came back to him and said, OK, well, what's the story? What's going on? He said, oh, no, I didn't mean that, Teresa Brennan. I meant another one. And actually, slowly but surely, things started to unravel. And he, tried, he said lie after lie after lie. He even, in the end, implicated his own mother, who was 94, and said that actually he was driving her car that day, so it couldn't have been him. And he was taken to court. And instead of a $36 fine, he was given two years in jail for perjury. The same jail that he'd sent many other people to in his lifetime. Bit of a sobering story, really. I wanted to begin with that because I want to ask the question how do you, or how do we, deal with times of trouble when we're in trouble of our own doing or of other people's doing? How do we deal with it? What's the best way? What's the wisest way that's not just going to land us in further trouble? The context of Psalm 27 is David speaking about times of trouble. He begins by saying, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? A great statement of confidence. But then he puts that in the midst of potential troubles. When evil men advanced against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, though an army besiege me, verse 3, my heart will not fear. Though war break against me, even then I will be confident. And we know that King David, probably writing this, knew this intimately. He knew as a young man what it was to experience war and battle and being surrounded by troubles, left, right and centre, on the run from the present king, King Saul told that he was going to be a future king, yet that seemed very far off. And he regularly encountered this. He knows what he's speaking about. And yet he says, I can face this with confidence. I will not fear. The Lord is my light and my salvation. And the question is, that I want to dig into this morning, what's his secret? What has he discovered that allows him to say this with such confidence, face troubles with such poise? Well, the answer is in the very next verse, verse three, verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. We're going to be looking very much at that verse in a moment, but it speaks of that decision David has made to stay close to God, to dwell in his presence and to turn his gaze upon the Lord, upon his beauty. And he says that's the key because doing that will change everything despite what might surround me, despite what could surround me. Spending time gazing at the Lord, seeing him is how I'm going to deal with this, how I found the best way of dealing with such troubled times. And this idea is prevalent throughout Scripture. The writer of Hebrews talks about the idea of fixing our eyes upon Jesus. 
the author and perfecter of our faith. Like the Bible it speaks about beholding his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. And it says that this, this is the key to facing times of trouble. It's important for us because the promise of scripture is that we will face times of trouble. Jesus says to his disciples in the last supper discourse, in this world you will have trouble. It's a promise he makes. On the same level of promise as any other promise in scripture, in this world you will have trouble. Here, know what that's like right now. You're in a time of trouble. We know in the, in the news this week, our nation has been feeling a time of trouble. Uncertain about the future Everything seems to be going astray for some troubling times. Psalm 11, the psalmist asks, When the foundations are being destroyed, what shall the righteous do? And let me suggest that this is the answer. This is the answer. To turn our gaze upon Jesus. To look to him, to behold him in his dwelling place. And for some here, you might say, well, that's all very nice and well, but that doesn't really deal with practical problems that I am facing. Surely that's just escapism or super-spiritualism, or for some atheists, it's just a psychological crutch to help with the pain. I want to say, no, this is real power to deal with actual troubles, to turn our gaze upon him. It's very important that David calls it beholding and gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. I was struck with that uh, this week because the Bible doesn't really speak much about that characteristic of God, his beauty. It's actually only here and in the book of Isaiah. And as a bloke, I'm not very good at speaking about beauty. Um, I was trained as a scientist, and so I'm very linear logical. I'm not very good at appreciating beautiful things. And so I looked up what beauty means, the kind of dictionary definition of beauty. And (laughs) there are various definitions, but all of them seem to say something about beholding something that is so perfect that it evokes and draws out of you a transformative response. So, for example, beholding the beauty of a bride on her wedding day, or any day. Beholding a beauty of a bride. Beholding a stunning vista out before you. Beholding the beauty of the smile of a newborn child. Such perfection that actually does more than please the senses. It evokes and it transforms. And this is what David is saying. He says, that's what I want to do in these troubled times. To behold the beauty of the Lord. His infinite perfections, which I know is going to transform everything in this situation. It's not a theoretical thing. I think that David is saying, doing this will draw me towards God and will draw God towards the things that I need in the midst of these troubles. And what I want to do this morning is to look specifically at two aspects of this beauty of the law that David probably especially meditated on and saw in such troubled times. And two aspects that we also can do so as well. And the first one is this. He would have seen a powerful saviour who saves. A 
powerful saviour who saves. Verse 5, he says, But in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. He uses three pictures here to say the same thing, really. That when he beholds God, he sees him as someone who is powerful to save. In not just a theoretical way, but an actual way of salvation. The first picture is of being kept safe in his dwelling. So that in the sudden day of trouble, he's already protected. He's already there, safe in God's hands. Many of you will know that the President of the United States is probably the most well-protected person on the planet. Um, Wherever he is, there is a plan to ensure his safety in case the day of trouble arises. If he's in the White House, there is a deep underground bunker underneath Washington that he can be quickly whisked off to and be buried underneath it all and kept safe. If he's actually visiting a foreign country, there's always a plan to whisk him back to Air Force One and there immediately take off and fly wherever he is in the world straight back to Washington. Maybe it'll take some mid-air refueling, maybe not. Because there he'll find protection and safety. It's an impressive thing, actually. I'm not sure we do it to the same extent for our Prime Minister. I hope we do it for our Queen, though. I do want to say, though, that in the sudden day of trouble, we have an even more immediate place of protection. Even more. Someone who is actually just a prayer away, and not even that. Psalmist in Psalm 91 says, Those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. But if you spend your life drawing close to God, being close to him, or what you get is God close to you. So that when troubles do arise, well, he's already there. And you already know that he's there. That he's there as that shelter, that refuge. You dwell in his shadow in the times of trouble. I guess my own experience with this is, is of finding this repeatedly through life's ups and downs. Uh, my clearest memory of this was of um, as being a school teacher about 10 years ago or so before I was ordained and uh, teaching during the day but also just passionately as a young Christian seeking God night by night and uh, throughout the weekends and uh, it was a special time for me actually looking back and during that time being a school teacher towards the end of a particular school year I woke up in the middle of the night having had a dream And the dream was this. I was driving my car, and uh, on my usual morning commute, and suddenly a car in front of me stopped, and it looked like I was going to go into him at quite high speed. And I had to split my decision in this dream. Do I go into the back of this car, slam on my brakes, knowing that that's what's going to happen, or do, do I try and swerve around this car? And in the dream, I swerved around the car, but unfortunately, what I hadn't seen was this rather large lorry coming up the inside. And as I did that, it hit me, and in the dream, I came tumbling over and over and over and ended up waking up and sensing the presence of God and thinking, what was that? God doesn't often speak to me in those ways. 
going, what was that? Well, fast forward a few uh, days later, and I was doing that commute and driving, and suddenly the exact same scene played itself out in front of me. The car stopped, and I had a split-moment decision to make. Do I slam on the brakes and go into the back of him, or do I try and swerve around him? And having had that dream, I actually made a decision differently and chose to slam on the brakes and go into the back room. And when I turned around, you can guess what I saw. This huge lorry coming up the inside that would have certainly hit me had it not been for what God had said in advance. And ever since then, for myself personally, I've just known that God is able to do that to keep us safe if we stay close to him. We can't predict how he's going to do it. It's not a surefire guaranteed thing, but he is able. This isn't a theoretical thing, let me say. He really is a refuge from times of trouble. He really can protect us and keep us safe from harm. Well, the second uh, picture that David uses is of being hidden in times of trouble. He says, he will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle. This is the idea of God being such a saviour that he hides us from the troubles when they emerge, so they don't even touch us. They don't even touch us. Some of you might have read or seen adaptations of Corrie Ten Boom's amazing story, her autobiography called The Hiding Place. And it's about a family in the Netherlands during World War II who provided a place for uh, Jews Jewish families to run away from the Nazis and be hidden and be taken out of Nazi-controlled areas. And they did this systematically for hundreds, in the end, of families. And in the story, it's a fascinating read. She speaks about the fact that they prayed fervently that the Nazis would never see these hidden Jews because they would get into trouble and so would the family. And repeatedly, the patrol knocked on the door can we search your house? Can we, we think there's something suspicious going on here. And repeatedly, they looked around the house, every single nook and cranny, every single room, under floorboards, through partitions, in the attic, and every single time, guess what? They couldn't see anything. There were times when they actually went into the space close to the family that was hiding and were stopped from going any further. There were times when it seemed it was going to be disastrous, and yet God intervened. And Corrie ten Boom, uh, trying to work out a a title for her book about this, uses a verse from Psalm 32 where David says, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. This is what he can do. It's what he does. And thirdly, David uses a picture of being lifted high. He says that he would set me high upon a rock. This is the idea that God can save us from troubles by literally lifting us up above them, above them all. You'll know that uh, the last uh, couple of weeks has seen the return of a national hero, really, Tim Peake, who has spent the last six months out in orbit above the Earth in the International Space Station. And he's back now, and there's much rejoicing. 
And it's interesting because I'm a bit of an amateur astronomer and science geek, so I was especially into it, I have to admit that. Um, but overnight, as soon as he went up, his Twitter feed, for some reason, went off the scale and actually became one of the most popular Twitter feeds in the entire country. And the reason was that he was started to post these most amazing pictures of Earth from orbit. All he had to do was take a camera and just point it out of his window. And wherever he pointed it, the Earth looked beautiful, whether it was a well-known region or an unknown region, whether it was a rich and affluent region or a destitute region, a place that was safe or a place that was experiencing troubles. Whatever he looked at from that perspective was just pure beautiful. God's creation, seen for what it is. And what David is speaking about here in the psalm is being lifted to a place that when you look back down, everything is transformed. And he's able to do this. That coming close to him, drawing close to him, he's able to lift us from the things that surround us, that seem impossible, lift us very high. And then when we look back down, we realize, oh, things are different. A divine perspective, seeing things clearly. Well, drawing these three pictures together, I want to say to you that, of course, the greatest example of this that we all should know here in this place is of being saved from our ultimate trouble that Jesus, our Savior, has done. You see, the Bible says that our ultimate trouble that surrounded us once upon a time was our sin and shame, the things that we've done wrong. And God is a just God who rights wrongs. We wouldn't want it any other way. And therefore, once, we were in serious trouble, every single one of us. But God says, no, I'm going to show you what salvation looks like. I am going to rescue you from these troubles. And of course, he stretches out his hand. He sends his Savior. He takes our troubles on his shoulders and he dies for them he dies for them so that now the bible says that we are saved from them each and every one here can know this that actually he is the one who is our refuge that his blood shed across surrounds us as protection isaiah speaks about the fact that he has hidden our sin behind his own back that he hides those troubles away the Bible speaks about being lifted above them so that now we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And let me encourage you today, this is the ultimate trouble that any one of us could be in. But we have an ultimate saviour. And if you don't know this, this morning, I invite you to come to him as the saviour. Just talk to me or one of the staff at the end of the service. And for those of you that have known this in your own life, this is testimony that this is what he does. Jesus' very name means the Lord saves, Yeshua. This is what he does. And if he did it then, he can do it now. This is what he's like. He's a powerful savior to save. Whatever life looks like, whatever might be going on, he's able to save. Well, that was the first point. A powerful savior who saves. The second thing that 
beholding the beauty of the Lord will allow us to see is a compassionate Saviour who cares. And for this, I want us to flick to our Gospel reading. It was Matthew 12, and that's on page 977. 977. And to set the context, Jesus has been preaching the kingdom of God and healing many sick who had been brought to him. But he'd warned them not to tell them, tell anyone about who he was. And Matthew, the gospel writer commentating on this, points to a part of scripture from the book of Isaiah, something called a servant song from Isaiah 42. And they were a series of prophetic songs looking towards the Savior who was to come and speaking about the fact that he was going to be a servant to serve the human race. Verse 18, here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. And Matthew's making the point that you might expect Jesus to be hugely self-glorifying or even egotistical. You might expect a saviour who trumpets his power and shows off in his glory. But no, that's not what Jesus is like. That he is the humble servant who gives his life for us. He's not over-triumphalistic He's not self-aggrandizing. This is why he wants to keep his name from getting out too far, because he wants to just get on with his mission, serving, seeking to save the, the last and the least and the lost. And in this, let me suggest, he shows us what type of savior he is. That he is a savior who shows compassion for the lost, who is just full of grace and mercy, who's one who cares for those in need. Key to this is verse 20, where it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He's saying that for those that come to him who are bruised from life's battles, who are close to being snuffed out, their fire is close to being quenched, he doesn't break the bruised. He doesn't snuff out those who are smoldering. He actually heals and restores and brings back into full flame. That's the kind of saviour he is. And I wanted to especially emphasise this because many in society today, when they think about God, don't see him as this. They would never come to him as a saviour because they think that he is completely opposite. That he's an uncaring tyrant who's just out to get you. That if you dare come to him, if you dare step into church... Well, you're going to know it, and you're going to get it. But Jesus says and shows very differently what he's like. He's not like that uh, giant foot from Monty Python that will come down and just squash us when we need him. That's not what he's like. In a fascinating interview, uh, the writer Douglas uh, Coupland, who wrote the seminal book, uh, Generation X, was once asked, what is your greatest fear? And his answer was that, that God exists but doesn't care very much for human beings. 
And if that was true, that would be a very valid fear. But it's not true. It is not true. Here is a Savior who is gentle, who is compassionate, who cares for the lost. This is why one of his first followers, Peter, is able to say later in the New Testament, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. This is who he'd seen Jesus to be. And ultimately, we know that even today, this is what he's like. He hasn't changed. You see, Jesus himself knew what it was like to be surrounded by troubles, to be surrounded by trials, to be surrounded by tears. The reason why a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out is because he was the bruised reed who was broken. He was the smoldering wick who was snuffed out. He knows what it's like. And because he knows what it's like as one of us, in our need, in our troubles, he is close by with compassion. He's not far off. He's not the distant tyrant. He is the intimate and close by saviour. It's often been said that the best surgeons in the world are not only the ones that uh, have great learning and ability, but actually those that have had surgery themselves. Because not only do they have the power to do it, but they also have the compassion to do it in a caring and loving way. And for our Saviour, he has all the power in the universe to save. We've just been looking at that. But he also has the compassion to do it in a gentle and caring way. And if some of you here have not come to him because you're worried about what he's like, can I encourage you, this is what he's like. A bruised reed, he will not break. He won't do it. He won't break you. In fact, he'll restore you. A smoldering wick, he won't snuff out. In fact, he's going to revive you. This is what he's like. Drawing those two points together, of course, this was always what we needed as well. You see, a powerful saviour who does not care is of no use to us because we won't want to go anywhere near him and he won't want to go anywhere near us. But a caring and compassionate saviour who has no power, well, that's just like a nice granddad who does nothing apart from comfort you and say, there, there, when you need major surgery. But we get both. We get both. A powerful saviour who can make a difference and a compassionate saviour who cares. In Jesus, the two come together. The two are together. And let me end by saying what the results can be if we see him, if we gaze upon this beauty of who he is. Back in the early 90s, uh, there were two Hollywood movies that came out that I really enjoyed. I won't say how old I was as to why I enjoyed them, but you can probably guess. And the first one was, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Anyone remember that? Told this story of a mad scientist who accidentally shrinks his, fam- his kids down to the microscopic level, just a few millimeters tall, and the hilarity of their journeying around and trying to get back to normal size. And then a few years later, there was a second film, a sequel. Can anyone remember what it was called? Honey, I Blew Up the Kids. 
and it was the same mad scientist, same family, actually, but now they had a young toddler, and this time his device works the opposite way, and it causes this toddler to increase in size to the size of a skyscraper. And the hilarity of the journey of trying to get this toddler back to normal size without causing too much destruction. I wanted to share that personal insight into my, my love of films. Uh, because, in a serious point, that when we see Jesus for who he really is as this type of saviour, that's exactly what happens. That our problems, our tears and fears shrink down in size, almost to the microscopic level sometimes. And he, he becomes much bigger. He dominates our vision. We see him for who he is. I encourage all of us, really, to seek this for ourselves. Because some of you may be in that place of times of trouble, in which case that is this morning you need to seek him. But for many of us, it is to come. And we need to be prepared for that time. Joni Erickson Tada, who uh, is a Christian speaker, who made a quadriplegic very sadly as a teenager, once said that I've made it a habit to glance at my problems and to gaze at my saviour. To just glance at them. They're there, but to gaze at my saviour. And this is a tough lesson, applying this. This is a tough lesson. We, we learn it, we forget it, and we need to learn it again. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, the hymn writer said, if I may speak of my own experience, I find that to keep my eyes simply on Christ as my peace and my life is by far the hardest part of my calling. Often we want to do it ourselves, save ourselves, or we want other people to do it. But this morning I encourage you to look to him to do it. He is the powerful saviour who saves. He is the compassionate saviour who cares in times of need. Let me pray for us. Holy Lord, as we gaze upon your beauty in your word and see who you are, we are stirred and moved that you are so powerful that you are able to deliver us from times of trouble and that you are so compassionate and caring that you will not break the bruised or snuff out the smoldering wick. And Lord, we pray that we might learn these lessons well. We pray that you might help us to fix our eyes upon you, the gaze of faith of our hearts. And I pray for those who at this very moment are in that day of trouble, surrounded. Lord, would you help them to lift up their heads towards you, to see you for who you are, to seek your face, to find you in your dwelling place, that they might find you as the gracious, compassionate and powerful Saviour once more. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. Amen. Well, can I invite you to stand? We're going to sing in some time of response. Sam and the band are going to lead us.